G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch and today's feature guest's work can be seen mainly on the street. Author and artist Peter Drew will be with us soon. In the show notes, you can find links to other chats he's had with Better Than Yesterday, Just Make That Thing, the daily talk show who go deep into the street art side, and there's a few writer perspective ones too. Before our chat though, let's dive in the box. Trio The Good Minus have released their debut album that opens with Mechanical Shark, a release that, and I quote, brings their own inventive take on prog pop. Rich and textured while widely approachable, time seems to swim along the release the ear is drawn in and also rewarded with three-part harmonies. The release rounds out perfectly with a cut called Roleplay. Let's now head to our feature guest. Across Australia, posters with the word Aussie have appeared on the streets in recent years, and across America, a series that states Australia, it works, with a broken-in-two gun in its centre. Both the work of one Adelaide artist, Peter Drew, who has recently released their memoir, Poster Boy. Drew was born in 1983, has a degree from the Glasgow School of Art, as well as being exhibited in various galleries They can still be seen on the street in high-vis, putting up their work. But what kind of music do they dig? In this unscripted chat, you'll find out and much more. Let's join Peter inside the State Library of South Australia, speaking with Radio Notes. Peter Drew, welcome to Radio Notes. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with Blood Plastic. I shot a short film in Broken Hill that involved launching some posters on a large balloon from the line of load, which is a big pile of tailings in Broken Hill. And the posters had pictures on them that are much like the pictures that I stick up on the street. There was a camel procession. It was a, quite a spectacle. I shot a lot of footage of the event and I wanted to make it into a short film. And I originally had a track in mind by The Dirty Three, uh, which had a nice sort of build and, and a peak to it. It was all instrumental. And I showed it to a friend of mine, Matthew Bate, who is a filmmaker, and he recommended that I use blood plastic and put me in touch with Marson and he came up with the track which is tailor-made for the film and it made it much better than just sort of picking a pre-existing song off the shelf and so that was a great learning process for me because it was sort of me having to take myself a little more seriously really rather Mm -hmm. than just picking a song which I liked and I thought did the job I thought I had to sort of accept the idea that maybe go a little further and collaborate with a professional musician it will um, maybe elevate the film and and it did you were very mindful of going during the broken hill festival which we've spoken about on the show previously what was the emphasis for you for going during the broken hill festival i just i thought it'd be an interesting clash in some ways i mean i'd been to the broken hill festival the year before had a great time and i wanted to go back and, and see more of it and also it was purely selfish reasons for wanting to be there at the same time I realized that and and encouraging my friends to come as well they would be more likely to go when the Broken Hill Festival was on because as much fun as we were going to have launching this balloon and the camel procession and the rest of it sort of ran the risk of being a bit of a somber occasion because of the content of the art but the Broken Hill Festival is a like a phantasmagoric um, celebration and it was fun and completely different to what I was doing so I thought why not 
Let's talk about what you actually were doing in Broken Hill with that music that we started off having the chat with. It's about storytelling, isn't it? What I do with the poster series, which the posters that we launched in Broken Hill, they, uh, they use photographs from the Australian National Archive of people who applied for exemptions to the White Australia policy. And I went to the archive, found many of these uh, images, turned them into posters with the word Aussie underneath because it, the appearance of these people conflicts with the still with the stereotype of what it is to be Aussie. And the fact that they are historic images make it doubly interesting. But really, it's more than anything, it's the fact that these people applied for exemptions to the White Australia policy so they could leave Australia and come back, not so they could just leave. So despite the fact that Australia once had this racist policy, these people wanted to leave and come back. They still wanted to belong here. I think that's it says something about their resilience, basically. I had the idea of putting three of these posters to make a kind of a kite, I guess. You imagine... So there's a three posters, backs to one another, all facing out. And on the poster is uh, a family of people who are from Broken Hill around the turn of the century. So there's a man who was born in Karachi, now Pakistan, and his two kids who were born in Broken Hill. And I don't know, from their appearance, it looks like their mother would have been Aboriginal. And so if you can imagine these two Aboriginal kids had to apply for special exemptions so they could be allowed back into Australia where their ancestors had lived for 60,000 years. They had to get a special exemption just so they couldn't be racially excluded. They're melancholy images because these kids don't... They can't possibly understand what they're wrapped up in. Like, they're they're young kids. One of them is on crutches and he has a pocket watch because his father was quite successful. And the girl looks quite... She would have been sort of early teenager, but she looks sort of forlorn. It's a melancholy image, the three of them together. I had the idea of putting it on a balloon and and sending it off into the sky. So what we did. Three images of Peter Drew is very important also. It was a surprise to you at the time when you were doing your Aussie series for some sports people who saw Aussie, Aussie, Aussie three in a row. Back in the Olympics, when the Olympics was in Sydney, the cry Aussie, Aussie, Aussie became... uh, It was everywhere. I had never really heard it before the Olympics, but it sort of just took over the television. Everyone was saying it at school. And it was a nice way of being happy about being Australian and it just seemed there was so much optimism back in 2000 in general the world changed drastically after that it sort of became less popular to be patriotic I guess on one occasion especially I lined up three of my posters that that had three of these images of people who applied for the white Australia policy and because it says Aussie underneath in the line of three it reads Aussie 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 and I was sticking them up out the front of, well, near to the MCG when there was a footy match on, and there were just swarms of footy fans heading in. One of the guys goes, oh, yeah, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. It, it didn't click until then that that's the way those posters could be read. You can never really predict or control how the audience is going to absorb your art when you put it out on the street or, or in a gallery or anywhere, but it's, it's just interesting. However people connect is good, usually. You mentioned the Dirty Three. Is that the kind of music that inspires your visual work? I just really connected with that track in particular. It's Indian Love Song, which has... It's just a terrific instrumental track 
a great build and then it sort of it floats at a point and it has a real ethereal sort of floating feeling to it and I thought that's what it will feel like when the balloon is floating through the air and you know when you're creating a project in which it's completely unlikely that it's going to work for starters or that it's going to fulfill what you desire it to fulfill having something to add to the vision of it is really helpful so when i was thinking okay we're going to get the camels we're going to get the balloons the posters put it together get it to broken hill get everyone up to the top of the line of load it was just the whole thing was so unlikely but having that song it really pulled the whole vision together i was using it but just using the song to think about it before we pulled any of it off and afterwards, it wasn't necessary for it to actually be the song in the video. So the question then is, when you're in a visual state of mind, thinking of a new idea visually, is there some sort of musical stimuli? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but not always, but I think the way people, or way I use music is, there's all sorts of different ways. Sometimes it's just fuel to get you through the day. You want something very rhythmic and energetic that's fun to listen to. For that example, it helped that it wasn't something that I was very familiar with and it was music that sort of took me out of my comfort zone, I guess. I think I've got music that I listen to that I go back to again and again. It doesn't really propel me intellectually or emotionally. It's kind of, it's just me. It's already a part of my identity. And then there's new music, music that I haven't really connected with yet. And that's the great stuff to listen to when you are trying to explore and find new ideas. Possibly tongue-in-cheek when you said it in the book, so I'm happy to take it as such. But you said when you got your home eventually, got the uh, $300,000 mortgage, that you started listening to 1323 Cruise AM, <laughs> the golden oldies. Is that true? It's true. I mean, it's obviously I've, it's, you know, it's a shameful truth, but, I mean, it's, it's just one of those... I was, I was trying to get across... It affects you the way that you live. I started looking at my lawn. I started watering the garden and thinking domestic thoughts like i don't know it's just funny when you when your behavior change according to the way you live it's like the neighborhood you live in or the friend you have you just sort of get sucked into its orbit at some point i realized i've really been listening to cruise fm a lot it must be because i have a mortgage now did music play a part within the uh, tooth and nail studio and other studios that you've worked within because that's more of a communal kind of area yeah, and no, I think that relates to what I was saying before about music because when you're in a big shared space, there's a kind of kinetic energy of other people making things and you share time together and learn techniques. It's all very quick and communal and that doesn't happen as easily when you're in a studio of your own. You have to actually go out and find those interactions whereas they find you if you're in a big shared space. When I moved into Tooth & Nail, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to get involved with screen printing. Screen printing is really the basis of my posters. And it was only because I moved into Tooth and & Nail and Jake had all his equipment. The whole studio was, was focused on screen printing. I thought, oh yeah, I'll give screen printing a shot. And then it turned into years and thousands of posters stuck up all around the country to when you don't have a clear direction yourself to just join a community and, and see where it takes you. Now, Jake, uh, of the podcast, A Place Called Home. That's right. And also the Come On Aussie, Come On Aussie exactly. marriage equality. Exactly, yeah. Jake's a terrific artist and he designed the, the Come On Aussie poster and it was right after I had finished up with Real Australian Say Welcome. I saw the design online and I thought, oh Jake you've got to make a project out of that because that design has a lot of potential so I 
got in touch and just encouraged him to do that and because I knew if I helped him do basically what I'd done for Real Australians Say Welcome, made a crowdfunding campaign, he could then send the posters all over the country and help propel the marriage equality debate. And it sort of it stalled in some ways because there was a bill in Parliament just while we were kicking off the project. That bill was stopped and so Jake and I said, well, let's just... I'm sure the debate's going to come up again. We'll just wait. Jake's project, which you're saying you gave a bit of a, a help along with, had a bit of a conclusion, not that marriage equality has been completely completed in Australia, but the, the idea of marriage equality through the ability to get married has occurred. Do you get a sense that your own projects might have some conclusion of that level in the future? As a real political result to his... Mm posted a project and I sort of had I remember saying to Jake at some point well, that must feel great that you were a part of a historical change whereas none of my projects have really when it comes to border security nothing's changed really I mean there have been little wins and little losses and there are still people trapped in detention I sort of had to shift my aim and my direction quite early on really when I realized that it was going to become quite exhausting if that was my only aim to to focus on a change in policy. I really try to focus on the effect the posters have on people on the street. I uh, very early on got messages from asylum seekers and former asylum seekers saying that the posters had made them feel more welcome. And that became my focus because that's it's something tangible. And that's probably a better aim for art in general, I think, is affecting people on a one-to-one basis rather than shifting entire governments. Another campaign you've recently done that sent you over to America, how's that been sitting with you in terms of the difference between America's gun policy or their lack of and Australia's resolve and what we've been able to do in that area? Well, that was a difficult one. I mean, I felt like I was a guest in that country, so I had to have a a lighter touch in some ways. And I think with all of my posters, they are a kind of compromise between two extremes. They're an attempt to find a middle ground. And I thought that that poster was quite gentle in some ways, that it just, it says in the simplest possible terms that gun control does work in Australia, and we're quite happy about it. Maybe you want to give it a try, in not so many words. And, and because I was a guest, I had to have a lighter touch about it because I'm not sure that our solution is going to be their solution because they're so much further along. There are already so many guns in circulation. I don't know how they're going to make things better, but it's just there's no point in falling into the rhetorical trap that they're in and trying to prove that gun control doesn't work can't possibly work because it doesn't even work in Australia. I, I know for a fact that I feel much safer in Australia just knowing that there are vastly less guns on the street. So I would say that gun control does work. I want to get back to the music. What songs you're currently listening to, Peter Drew? I've recently been listening to the soundtrack to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Tarantino film. It's a fun soundtrack because it's very, a lot of the songs are in mono I think or at least they haven't been remastered so I think it's meant to sound like it would in a car stereo in the late 60s and I like when I see a movie or 
any work of art i'd like to really get into it and stay with it for a while afterwards so i saw the film a week ago and i've been listening to the soundtrack non-stop ever since it's a fun soundtrack it's a lot of songs i really love that era i'm sort of very stuck in some ways in that era when it comes to music and so it's always fun to hear stuff that i hadn't heard before and, and discover new things though still not leaving my comfort zone in a way which era are we talking about sort of late 60s early 70s and, and sort of spreading out from there my the first music i got into i really got into was bands like led zeppelin pink floyd the beatles and i go back to that those are the the, song, uh, the bands that i'm always going to like in some way and even if i don't listen to them for months on end i i know that i'm always going to keep going back there i've definitely become less adventurous the older i get sort of i have find i have less need to find new music my sort of musical identity is kind of established curiously you were born in 1983 which is after those said years <laughs> it is <laughs> So who's responsible for introducing you to such sounds? The friends I made in early uni. And I think that's a really funny and interesting point. That, And we spoke about that as, as friends. Like, why are we so nostalgic for this time of our parents' youth? That's so non-rebellious. And there's a contradiction in that. In that this time, which was rebellious, that we are nostalgic for it, which is not a very rebellious thing to be. But yeah, it was in early uni and I, all through high school, I sort of just listened to electronic music, run-of-the-mill dance stuff like Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim and, and, and nothing. And, and the first album of Daft Punk, I really liked Homework. Then got to uni and started listening to, to classic rock and started playing bass guitar. It was a, sort of a, a change of identity. What's your relationship like with the bass guitar? I... Only I keep telling my friends that I will practice. I used to play a lot, just every day. These days, I only play it when I'm with my friends and we get together and jam and it's really just an excuse to hang out. Although we do take it seriously while it's happening, it's become much more... It's just a fun way of talking to one, one another. Back in the day, we were silly enough to have ambitions of maybe this could be something but now that has all gone away and it's just fun to get together because we don't see each other as much as we used to does that mean you spent more time indoors during those university days than you might have out pubs and clubs at the time i'd say so yeah i'd never really been big on going out a whole lot never really into live music Though, I mean, when I do go out, when I have seen stuff, it's always fun, but I've never really gotten into the scene. I want to get back to this idea that the music that you're into and still are, it seems, is before your time. Was it to get a better connection with the parents? There could be some truth to that. I... (laughs) You can't possibly say it's just because that music is better. I can give you reasons why I like that music better because it's played by instruments and it's a group of people in a room at the same time a lot of the, a lot of the time musicians started layering and using more production but it's just I, I like the spontaneity of hearing a group of musicians in a room and they are communicating with one another in the moment I think that has a certain energy to it that you can't get as soon as it's going through pro tools or, or whatever it is I think that getting into the music of the late 60s early 70s it's not just about the sounds and the band it's the 
excitement of that time that there was great change happening and growing up in the 90s when we'd been told that history was over that uh, you know the Berlin Wall had come down and from now on it's just going to be liberal democracy and everything going to be on the up and up and kind of boring in a way there's no sort of great change happening it made sense that we're nostalgic for a time that was full of turmoil and, mm-hmm. and full of change. What was the music you were listening to in the family home? My mum bought a CD player before anyone else had one and there was a set of like classical CDs and yeah. I listened to those a lot. The music was so crisp and clear and you could you know, listen to it as many times as you like. I had a tape deck and I recorded things off the radio but that would have just been the pop songs of the time. You know, when you're really young, you just sort of whatever you hear that catches your ear you'll listen to my mum had some Enya and stuff like that as well which she'd play it was not a musical household we were encouraged to play piano when we were younger but none of us really took to it it was something that our mum suggested that we do because she never got the chance to and so we were going to redeem that for her but none of us I was, I was basically being taught piano before I liked music so it didn't make sense and my dad really doesn't like music like he never plays it when we're in the car uh, he might hum a tune sometime but I don't really know what tune it is he's humming we're not a musical family and in comparison to my wife who like she does come from a musical family her dad sings and plays guitar they sing along together that whole family has so much more musical talent than most of the people I've ever met I've just realized oh that's how you connect to music and have musical ability is you grow up with it and it becomes this thing that you exchange with one another over the kitchen table you know you sing together once I met her and her family I realized I'm never going to be a musician it's just not in my bones in the same way it is with her and her brothers and sisters I'm curious where your father's humming was coming from if he didn't actually listen to music why there was still the need to hum that's a good question I don't know yeah that's an odd one yeah, I don't know. I've asked him, what, so what music do you like? I can't really remember what he said. He doesn't have like a collection of music or anything like that. It proves that music's so visceral sometimes as well that even those that don't engage it can, a bit like your art, can still have a response to it. Even yes. if they're not consciously engaging with it. Let's talk about your wife. She's obviously a guiding light for you during some of those harder times. Reading yeah. the book anyway, it appears. Yeah, that's what she said. I think it's true that the book is full of big problems personal and political but throughout it I keep coming back to her and she is very much the constant the rock that holds me together in in a lot of ways what music bonds you to that's a good question it was funny we exchanged like mixed cds when we got together which is a funny ritual when you make a mixed cd you you want to say mixtape don't you you really (laughs) want to say mixtape but you know in your heart of heart it's not a mixtape there's not an a and b yeah but did you even try to do an a and b on the cd i think i probably had a i just had a list even mixed cd is not going to make sense to some people like because so we walk them through it so you have a CD burner, go to the shop and buy a CD and put it in your computer and arrange the songs and the trick is to arrange them in a way which gets your prospective partner to understand who you are. So you want to put in some of your favourite songs but you also want to put in some songs which probably aren't even your favourites but are just going to make them think, wow, this guy's he's deep and impressive. and, and uh, Also known as Jeff Buckley. <laughs> Oh, so true. 
yeah you want to pick the songs that she's oh well that's the same song that I put on mine for you no we we both uh, swap it's, CDs it's a, it's a bit of a landmine sort of situation because you think there should be a Hanson song on there but you're not sure if there should be Julia's a big Hanson fan but like you know when she was 14 or, or whatever mm. no if I'd put it on there when we met it probably wouldn't have helped alright so what was on this mixed CD to be honest, I wish I could remember. Julie Guaranteed she can remember. No, that's it. She can remember everything. I can't remember what I said or what I was wearing last week, but she can remember what I was wearing years ago. I can't remember what was on there. There would have been some Led Zeppelin though, because I she didn't know them and I introduced her to them. And she likes them, you know, probably as much as I do, but it's not the sort of stuff that I listen to these days. What song, if you can remember, did you put on it purely for her? E.g. a song that wasn't for you, you didn't possibly like them necessarily, don't have to admit it. What song was that? (laughs) I'm really sorry, but I wish I could remember, but there were definitely some songs that that were just me trying to win her heart, but they're not songs that I would have listened to. It would have been newer stuff. Um... Yeah, but I can't remember, sorry. No Fiona Apple or anything like that. Oh, no, that is exactly the... That that is exactly the right sort of thing. I remember listening to that sort of stuff around then. Just suddenly, yeah, when you start falling in love, I guess, that's... um, You start listening to stuff that normally, if you're hanging out with your mates... Like, if we were hanging out jamming, oh, guys, you want to try Fiona Apple number? They're going, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, it was nice to swap songs. Do you reckon the mixed CD helped in the romance? Definitely. I think it's a great way of getting to know someone, not just who they are, but who they want to be seen as. It's a bit of a game. I wish I could remember what she'd put on. There would have been some Bjork, because she's a big-time Bjork fan. It has, and that's one of the things that hasn't changed, because there are some things on there that were by Deerhoof, who she hasn't listened to since then, really. She'll be listening to Bjork forever, I think. Mixed CDs. Did not know we were going to go there. It's a bit sad that that's... I wonder what kids exchange now. They must just... Spotify playlists. But it's when you get a mixed CD, you are stuck with it. What's the difference between having a hard medium, which you listen to over and over again? You can't just sort of... I mean, guess you can skip tracks and stuff, but it's more... You're sort of forced to listen to it all, listen to it repeatedly. Whereas if you're just listening to something on a digital format it's kind of it's so much easier to just oh I'll check Instagram or whatever but the more easily shareable media becomes it you're less contained when you're watching it or you're, you're you can escape and pay less attention to it quite easily what songs make you subdued when you're angry so when you're angry oh, I don't know that I listen to music to get subdued do you get listening to music to get angrier yeah, I think it's. I think catharsis works in some ways. You want something that is sympathetic with the way you're feeling, and it helps you get it out. And that's what works for me. If you're feeling really sad, and then you hear just sort of a happy song, it just sounds terrible. Like I, I, you want to hear something that makes you feel even worse. You know, feel at least oh, somebody feels sympathy for what I'm feeling. Yeah, you feel grateful that, oh, that is that is exactly what I'm going through. I've never really been attracted to angry music or sort of metal or... There's something... And people aren't going to like this, but there's something sort of absurd to me about metal. Stuff like Tool. 
I've got friends that are really into Tool and I sort of try to make fun of them about it because it's so precise but so angry. Like Whereas anger to me is, is chaotic. Um, when you're precise and angry, I find it to be an ugly combination. <laughs> so you're not into restraint? Well, rest- That's what it is, isn't it? It's restraining the anger into saccatoed. Well, that's a good way of describing it, yeah. Oh, that's a fun, interesting way of seeing it. That makes more sense. But I just, I don't know, when I feel angry, I like, I like it just to be blasting out chaotically. Do you think conflict is important? Well, it's inevitable. If there's difference, then there's, there's conflict. And I think it's enjoyable in some ways because it can move things towards some sort of resolution. And good things come out of tension between things. Creativity comes out of tension. If you just sort of, everyone's going along and you avoid conflict for the sake of it, you miss out on an opportunity for creativity in some ways. Because if there are two things that are opposed, perhaps the solution to those two things is a third thing. And so sometimes that third thing needs to be created. I don't know, personally, like just my own temperament, I don't like conflict. I, I generally dislike it as much as anybody, but I just I see that if you avoid conflict for the sake of it, things can get worse, and then the conflict becomes harder and harder to deal with. So it's best to sort of be upfront about it as quickly as you can. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life... And those in life, chat music and more. You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on Radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes. We're currently in conversation with Peter Drew. The Poster Boy is the name of the current book that's out. Promise to be honest. Realise very early on I'm not a writer. The one way you can write a good book without being a writer is to just be completely honest. And I think even if you are a writer, that's probably a good way to go about it. That doesn't mean getting it right. Uh, It just means explaining yourself as clearly as possible and not holding things back for the sake of not upsetting people or your own discomfort that's the main reason why you wouldn't be honest is because you're afraid how you'll be perceived whereas I was quite confident that I could explain myself well enough for people to not misunderstand me so I thought I'll be completely honest and talk about the things that I don't like about myself which is the hardest thing to talk about and obviously the things I don't like about Australia the things I don't like about art and to try to be honest about where I see the conflicts. And then if the people who you are in conflict with are also honest, mm. then you you can find there is some middle ground and you can move forward. But if you're really keeping your cards close to your chest and the other side is as well, you're really missing opportunity to come together. It just becomes a, a sort of a silly power game at that point. Whereas the whole idea of discourse is that through communicating the solutions emerge you can't really see them on your own you can only see the solutions once you're engaged in discourse with the people you disagree with and i think that's a pretty good foundational idea for how to build a civilization really i also took from that that just honesty in the everyday as well in the interpersonal relations that you might have do you seek that that you wish to have honesty in all your interactions i try to but it's 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 impossible i mean you can't 
get everything that's happening in your head out I don't think that's really what honesty is anyway I mean that would be irresponsible to drive because the things that flash through your head aren't necessarily you as well they are just partly just the noise that is clattering around in your head from everything you've absorbed in your day-to-day life it is responsible to to say what you're thinking and to have enough trust that the person will uh, who's listening to you will take that as just what you're saying not necessarily your opinions about something as long as you do it in a responsible and respectful way I mean most most of the time the person I'm talking to is Julie we've got a you know, pretty good rapport having been together for 10 years. And so we sort of understand each other very well. But if I was dishonest with her, it wouldn't help. It, I really, If there's something that I'm doing that she doesn't like, it doesn't help if she doesn't tell me. Like we need to be really clear and open about it and sort of have an element of faith that no matter what, we're going to work it out. And I think it works. Because, but if we keep things back, then it sort of festers and it just comes out later with, with more force. How do you position yourself to someone like a Banksy who doesn't have a face? You obviously do. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I just took that in the silliest way. I'm, well, I'm sure he has a face as well. I just I don't know what it looks like. Um, or she has a face. Yeah, you know, good point. I think if you're living in London or New York or one of the centres of the world, there can only be one Banksy, one sort of great anonymous artist. I mean, there are other anonymous artists, but he's like the Elvis of street art. And I just didn't really need that to do what I wanted to do. I think with what I'm doing now, bringing out this book, it definitely is a chance for me to really say everything that I can't say through posters. And there'll be a time after this when I think I will become more private and then work on some different work and there's sort of a rhythm to it I think because you put up work on the street that doesn't fully explain itself it's just a picture of a guy in a turban with a cool moustache and it says Aussie oh that's interesting and that curiosity sort of draws you in and then you do that for a while and then you release a book and then you go back into the shadows again I I just think there's a bit of a a give and take a couple of years ago I didn't know I was going to write this book and it's interesting to sort of be I don't know to be exposed in that way I just I would think that if I were Banksy I would like obviously it works for him but with my temperament I would get very bored I think there's only a certain amount you can do being anonymous obviously once you're out then you can't ever go back I could imagine feeling somewhat trapped but I mean, I love his stuff, but um, I knew from the beginning it was never for me to sort of, to be that hidden. And there's not really, the thing is, it's a bit of, what's the word? It's not real in some ways. I mean, no one's, no one's, there's no task force to find Banksy and to bring him and to prosecute him for all his illegal street art. He's not that much of an outlaw. It's a bit of a performance and I think it's terrific. And I think if I was to try and do that, it would it would be a bit pretentious. I want to bring it back to music. Whether or not you think, particularly the kind of music that you're into, whether or not music has any value as a protest movement. Oh, of course. But I count myself as... The book is, is about trying to describe this in some ways and that you need to decide between being an artist and an activist. Mm. And an artist is about curiosity and the imagination and trying to find out 
about the world whereas being an activist is about deciding what the world is and how you want it to change and there are things I'd like to change about the world but I, first and foremost I think of myself as an artist and more than anything I want to find out more about the world and so you put art into the world that sort of ask a question and then you get a response and you have to learn from that response I think music is if you want to make it about a process that's fine the more of an activist you are you do compromise your you, you compromise something about yourself as an artist I think I mean there's so many different ways to compromise yourself as an artist you can do it commercially but you can do it from pretending to know too much about the world and pretending to know too much about how to fix the world yeah it's, it's something that I've thought of a lot about because obviously you look at my poster real Australians say welcome you'd assume oh there's a guy who thinks he knows how to fix the world and but really I'm trying to make fun of people who think they know how to fix the world uh, I think art is ultimately a circuit breaker between those two opposing sides it's a way of showing the frailty of each side that's the game I'm most interested in is making art to try to pull people towards a center where did the curiosity start for Peter curiosity for art curiosity in general I think that's because you know we, we see it as such a youthful kind of thing but I think it may have been a little later in life for you I think you're right I think in, when I started at uni well uh, let me tell you when I started at uni I wanted to be an accountant I was enrolled in commerce at Adelaide Uni and I thought yeah making money that's how I'm going to define myself that's a worthy aim because I didn't know anything about myself really I thought well, you know when you're young you just latch onto a thing and go right that's my identity that's enough and I started studying accounting and it was at exactly the same time that I'd met these new friends and I was starting to listen to all this new though old music <laughs> and I thought I have got no interest in accounting at all like it's not who I am I'm interested in art <laughs> I'm interested in the imagination in philosophy and history and and I I just need a little bit of time to figure out who I am and what I want to do and so I dropped out of commerce and started studying psychology and philosophy did you do that to find yourself what was no absolutely I'm still trying to that's what art and philosophy are is is trying to find yourself forever <laughs> you know it's not a a way of finding out some secret for that's going to fix something it's kind of it's it trying to invent yourself for the rest of your life I guess I mean that's the conclusion I basically came to but yeah I think I was stunted in a lot of ways till my sort of late teens when I realized oh I've actually got a responsibility to figure out who I am and sort of and, and build that in some ways because just dedicating my life towards making money what could be more dull was it stunted because of a lack of role model I'd take responsibility for it I think by the time I was 18 19 I should have I had plenty of opportunities there's plenty of stuff in the culture that was rebellious and trying to get through to my little teenage brain saying you know decide for yourself who you are contribute something create something I mean that's what all culture is screaming at us you know it's saying do it yourself pick up an instrument create something well Nevermind was released when you're eight years old I yeah I know I just it just didn't get through I was sort of uh, the first CD I ever bought was Smash by The Offspring 
and I just had that because some other friend had said the offspring was good and, and I never really I never liked I didn't it's funny like you it's like falling in love like you don't you think you've fallen in love and then later you really fall in love and you look back and go hang on that wasn't that wasn't anything like that was just hormones yeah exactly it was only later when I really found music that I really loved and look back and hang on why was I listening to to that stuff I just I, it didn't really it, like make me feel anything even at the time other than like yay I like this music that means I can be friends with other people who say they, they like this music did you listen to the Offspring album or did you just play it a couple of times no I listened to it and I tried to and I f- sort of I remember finding things in it but I never thought this is me I want people to read the book so I'm not going to say too much about this and I've been trying not to but you have one brother who's more right of what you you are and your views and then you have one who's found themselves these days yeah I have things that I really like about both of my brothers and th- and that's the thing the book is ultimately about is that you're going to have disagreements profound disagreements with the people that you love and you need to come to terms with that and that doesn't mean stop loving them and, and also doesn't mean force yourself to agree with them that happens in families as it must happen to all of us then you can extrapolate that outwards towards the way you treat all people you should have some element of love for all people doesn't mean you have to agree with them completely there's always that tension between you know love and profound disagreement my family's full of that and the book is really about being honest about that with them so that i can get on with the rest of my life what's your favorite love song um i'm not i'm really bad at being pinned down on favorites because what comes to mind (laughs) i was in the supermarket yesterday and unchained melody was on and i thought you know i actually like this song it's it's actually quite good um although you know it's just been spoiled because of the movie ghost and all that I wish I could say. I wish I could pull out something that Look, was quite say it, interesting. Look, you say it's spoiled by the movie, but you still get your choice to like it beyond that. I agree with you, and I. Julie always does this thing whenever a song comes on. She always does it for classical music. She goes, "Oh, this is from that scene in Fantasia." And I go, "No, Julie, this song is not defined by that Disney movie. You can have it. Like, take it back. Listen to it the way you want to." That's the same way I, I feel about Unchained Melody, but it's any song that appears in a movie it's it's just a great door to discover that song have you had much of a live music experience uh i mean i've played live a bunch of times but i've never done it enough to enjoy it i think it's one of those things you have to do a bunch of times sure. to sort of in terms of going to concerts i mean same in some ways i mean i've, I've been to like a handful of concerts it's an odd thing isn't it because it's like about joining a mass of people Mm-hmm. And you really have to let go in order to to get into it. I'm just trying to think of a concert that I've really enjoyed. The concerts I've enjoyed the most was when I was quite young and going to the big day out and it just being this smorgasbord of like, oh, what are we going to see now? Oh, go run over and see this band and just jumping into the mosh pit and it's just being this frenzy. And I absolutely love that. And it was sort of so unpretentious because you could just go oh yeah we'll just try it out and like some of the best times I had was with bands that I didn't really know and I remember I think the Datsuns played like that New Zealand band 
they were awesome because I was sort of getting into Zeppelin at the time and they were very sort of Zeppelin-esque and I was just like I had a terrific time so I guess when you go to a, a concert that you really love and you think well this is going to be a special experience it, like it it always builds up too much expectation sometimes it's it's nice when it's just a festival atmosphere and you can just jump in what has Robert Plant taught you? I remember the first time when my friends were introducing me to, to Led Zeppelin I saw Robert Plant's photograph on the, the liner notes of, uh, of Remastered and he was there sort of with his head back his chest out and this sort of mane of hair and I thought I cannot identify with this guy he is so full of himself like how can you that's ridiculous but at some point I just thought no that's fantastic just to be completely comfortable with yourself there's something very sort of magnetic about that a band like Led Zeppelin is definitely about masculinity and and finding some way of feeling comfortable within it I think that I mean, that's I keep coming back to the book because I've just finished writing it a lot of the book is about trying to find a way of being comfortable with being a man although that's it's a difficult thing because it's complicated and uh, but yeah I look at Robert Plant and say well, there's a guy who's very comfortable being a man. But the thing that I like about him is that he's not a typical man. He's very comfortable in masculinity, but there's something so feminine about him as well. And that's I think that's interesting. I think it's very interesting that, you know, in order to be comfortable in masculinity, you need to not be afraid of the feminine as well. Yeah, maybe that's a good thing to get from Robert Plant. Let's talk about another Robert in your life. In your Norwood studio, you had a photo of Robert Hughes, the art critic. Why yeah. was that? Oh, I love Robert Hughes. I think that he was someone that made me really connect to art in a very sort of literary way because he was so verbose. Robert Hughes was an Australian art critic and he had a series called The Shock of the New and it was a television series in which he explained what is modern art, how, where does it come from, how does it affect the history of art and he was so talented at explaining art in a way which is accessible but also very deep very cutting as well he was not afraid to say what he thought and uh, whether he liked an artist's work or not and I think there's something terrific about that there's something flattering about honest criticism I mean there's something almost disrespectful about treating somebody as if they're not strong enough to hear your criticism and that's what I got from Robert Hughes yeah I love all his writing I love all his his TV work and I sort of kind of just like his courage to just say exactly what he thinks and to make it to make it funny as well and brings us back to that thing of honesty as well how honesty can be one of the strongest things you can give Absolutely. I think I'd emphasize that point that it's respectful to treat somebody like they can take some criticism. If they're an adult, they should be able to hear something that might offend them. It's condescending to treat people as if they are somehow all inherently so vulnerable that they can't hear what you really think. As long as you're not trying to hurt them, there's a, there's a difference. It's always based on intention, and so we can't ever really tell. I mean, it seems like the safest thing to do would be just, well, don't, don't upset anybody, just be super nice all the time. But it's, there's something fundamentally insulting about that, ironically enough. What kind of music do you think the next generation will be into? Will they be looking at the 90s as some sort of beautiful era? I'm looking forward to being old and, and um, I feel it already just not understanding what is happening in music. I think, I don't, well, I you mean... You didn't the, really give your parents that chance though, did you? 
What do you mean? Like, well, because you went to their era for your musical influence. So what musical yeah. influence will the generation you produce have? Well, I guess, I mean, uh, uh, one way to approach that question is like, how am I going to offer music to my kids when I bring them up? And I think the way to do it is to just give them as much as possible and try to help give it some context because that helps, I think, is to sort of understand a bit about the era I mean, I, I do listen to classical music every now and then because it, it's like time travel. It's like trying to hear the thoughts of somebody who lived hundreds of years ago. And then when you can connect it to other bits of culture, like the books from the time or what was happening more broadly, it's finding those connections that really sort of opens up any form of culture. There'll be a lot of music in the house, though we'll probably, it won't be on CD, there will it'll probably no. be on Spotify. Every city has a sound. Mm. Will we having music more integrated into our streets as your art has become integrated into the streets? Will music become something of the streets? Oh, I hope not. I mean, I think, you know, it should be personal as well. You don't... Uh, for one thing, I like public space, but I don't particularly like it when you go into public space and there's just sound and music everywhere. It's a bit of a cacophony. Like, It's nice when you can be in public space and you, you can just hear people talking and... I wouldn't like it if it was just if there's more music everywhere. I don't think, you know, there's lots of music in the world. I don't think we necessarily just need to have it in more places. Over 3,000 posters, 3,000, 4,000, about that? Between three and five. I'm not very good at keeping count. <laughs> How many more posters do you have in you before this family becomes the number one ongoing priority? That is... The question, but I I don't see myself ever stopping. I don't think that there's something so dreadfully dangerous about sticking up posters on the street that I should ever have to give up doing it. That being said, while I was in the States, I was a lot more careful than I am here. And I think I've just gotten out the aggression with which I used to stick up posters. I really see myself doing it into my old age. I actually, actually prefer the idea of, isn't it more interesting an old man sticking up posters rather than the youthful rebel? That's a cliche. I'd love to just keep doing it, keep coming up with posters until I cark it. I'd love to just never give up. The drive for which you do your work... Will you still have that drive, as you're saying, when you're not angry and not... It changes. I think that's the thing you learn as an artist if you stick at it for any amount of time is that the youthful energy burns up, but you need to find new reasons for creating and inevitably do. The reason I make posters now is quite different to the way I did it when I was younger. There's less anger and more consideration. Yeah, I think you have to be comfortable letting go of the reasons why you used to do it and it's natural that you don't want to get stuck into a trap because this happens with all kinds of artists whether it's poster artists or musicians that you become known for doing a certain thing and then you feel an expectation to keep doing that thing i've always just gradually shifted you mentioned about masculinity and identity and i'm sure other interviews will go into more depth regarding this but do you have a better sense having done your projects of who you are as a bloke i think so i think it's helped me sort of calm down in some ways there's a bit of catharsis in sticking up thousands of posters there's a lot of physical effort that goes into that and you once it's done you realize there's so many more walls in the world i can't stick up posters on all of them at some point i need to just sort of 
relax a bit but masculinity in general it's it's a very complicated thing and i no i don't think i understand it entirely at all but i just i feel more comfortable with being a man being less of a boy i guess i just see it as more of taking responsibility for your place in the world when you're a child you can rely on others to take care of you at some point you need to take care of others i think that's what growing up is all about your father your brothers have read this book now is it a good outcome well i've spoken to my mum and dad and they've both said that they found the book very uncomfortable which is completely understandable there are things they really didn't like about it which i understand also but those conversations that we had were some of the better conversations we've ever had and i have a certain amount of faith that in being honest and opening things up it will help in the long run i don't know why i believe that particularly i just think more generally as a rule honesty and the truth wins in the end is that because honesty's worked in the past for you? That when you have been honest, you've been rewarded by more affection or, or more engagement? What I do know is that keeping secrets and, and hiding from the truth, it sort of festers and, and corrodes your confidence, your character. So I don't know that the truth and honesty works, but I do have a pretty strong feeling that the opposite doesn't work. And that's enough to guide me moving forward if i can quote you if lies persist they gradually erode love into shame i think that's true and that happens in all sorts of different ways you can think about that on a national scale with australia's history or you can think about that with your relationships you have with the people closest to you if you have some sort of lie it never really goes away it can't be undone just by you keeping it secret it will sort of chip away at you ever so gradually Peter Drew, thank you for opening up and chain to Radio Notes. Thank you very much for having me. Peter Drew. Online at peterdrewarts.com where you can get posters of theirs for your own home or office. Poster Boy is available through Black Ink Books. Next time, Jamie Franchia, producer, DJ, teacher, will pick up on some of the themes covered today. Hope you can join us again then. Thanks very much to our special guest, Peter Drew. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Listener.